Hey everybody, what is going on? DJ here, and today I have a very special episode of the Restaurant Growth Podcast for you. Back in June, we partnered with QSR Magazine for a webinar which featured Seven Shift CEO Jordan Bush, as well as Danny Meyer, the founder of Union Square Hospitality Group. The topic was creating a restaurant culture that attracts and retains, and Danny and Jordan dove into what makes a great restaurant culture, and it features lessons and learnings from Danny's decades-long career in hospitality, as well as some great audience questions. And I can guarantee that you'll look at your restaurant just a little bit differently after listening, in a good way. The session was hosted by Danny Klein, the editor at QSR and FSR, also a previous guest of the show. If you're more of a video person, you can check out the webinar in its full video form at our YouTube channel. I'll drop the link in the show notes. And without further ado, here's the full unedited conversation. Hello, I'm Danny Klein, editorial director at QSR Magazine, and I'd like to welcome you to today's webinar, Creating a Restaurant Culture that Attracts and Retains. Restaurants, among the hardest hit industries during the pandemic, are in the midst of a labor shortage. As restaurateurs look to hire new team members and keep existing ones, it's crucial to understand what employees are looking for, especially with the increasing costs, both in terms of time and money, for sourcing and hiring. But how do you stand out in a crowded market when looking to grow and retain your team? Restaurant brands that are leading the change in the industry are putting culture at the forefront because building a world-class culture that creates great guest experiences happens from the inside out. In this program, we'll dive into what it takes to build a restaurant culture, the different operational aspects that play a role in retaining talent, and the importance of honing in on your restaurant's core values to stay competitive in a tight labor market. A couple of housekeeping notes before we get started. First, this session is being recorded, and we will let you know when the recording is available. Second, we will be answering questions at the end of the program, and you can use the functionality on the webinar console to submit a question at any time. Now, to begin. We're thrilled to have joining us Danny Meyer, founder and CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group, and Jordan Bush, CEO of Seven Shifts. I'll turn it over to them to get started. Awesome. Thank you for the intro, uh, Danny Klein. Uh, we've got two Dannys on the, on the call, so got to make sure we, we uh, highlight the last name. So um, thank you, everyone, for, for joining us today. My name is Jordan. Um, as Danny Klein mentioned, I'm the CEO at Seven Shifts. Um, we are a, a team management uh, scheduling and communication platform for the restaurant industry and um, entirely focused on it. I'm you know, excited to be to be joined by uh, Danny Meyer of Union Square uh, Hospitality as well. So, you know, Danny and uh, Danny's Union Square Hospitality Group comprises of some of New York's most beloved and acclaimed restaurants. Uh, Danny and the USH and USHG founded Shake Shack, the modern day roadside burger restaurant, which became a public company in 2015. Under Danny's leadership, USHG is renowned not only for its acclaimed restaurants, but also for its distinctive and celebrated culture of enlightened hospitality. Danny has set industry standards in areas such as hiring practices, innovative leadership, and corporate responsibility, and addresses a wide range of audiences on such topics around the country. So very excited to, uh, to have you here today, Danny Meyer. Welcome. I'm really grateful to be here, Jordan, and thanks to everybody for tuning in today. I wish I could see everybody, but I can't. So we'll do the best we can to try to answer questions down the road. And, and uh, I'm just really honored to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. And I wanted to uh, to kick off really with our uh, kind of a high-level goal here. You know, we want to discuss and share some learnings of how some of the best operators are retaining their people. And really, you know, Danny, Danny and I want folks to walk away from this with some with some tactical things they can do to implement for their own restaurants around engaging staff, retaining them, and uh, and, and really try and 
raise the waters for um, for all of the uh, restaurant operators out there because I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity here and we think that there's immense immense ability to do better um, in the space. And so, you know, a lot has been talked about recently around labor shortages, but I think very few are talking about retention and engagement for the existing workers. And what I've noticed is on the flip side is the ones that are doing retention and, and have a very engaged staff are not really talking about a labor shortage. And so, you know, we want to we want to bring those to the forefront as well. And um, you know, personally, I think for a long time uh, we, we felt that restaurants have untapped potential. You know, they uniquely employ the highest number of teenagers out of any private industry in the U.S. First time job for many of these folks. It's the first time management job that a manager will have where they can really cut their teeth at and really restaurants are, are the social backbone to society so you know we as humans need restaurants we need them to survive and thrive and um you know now you know especially after the pandemic hit and we're seeing it now is that you know, a lot of restauranters uh, restaurant workers are kind of going with their feet going to other industries um you know maybe went back to school and, um, you know, we want to make sure that we can kind of surface some of the, the data and the trends that we're seeing so that we can have a, a good discussion on a path forward here. So I want to move on to the culture topic, which is, you know, I think this is a, a word that gets thrown around a lot. And it's kind of it kind of feels like a bit of a black box to, to many folks. And, you know, we think that there, it's it's very important in a workplace and not just, you know, not, not specific to one industry, but many industries, um, you know, we, we want to have a, a great culture in a workplace, but how do we really define culture? Uh, Danny Meyer, like, I'd love to, to kind of even just hear your thoughts around, you know, how you define culture and, and how you think about it. Thanks, Jordan. I, I have so much to, to say, and, and I think about culture every day. I define culture as the reason I get out of bed in the morning, and that I, I realizing that that's not enough of an answer. There's a lot of metaphors I have. The first is that if you are a, a, a grape grower or a winemaker, the culture is the soil. You can have the world's best grapes, and they will never grow any better than the health of the soil in which you're growing them. In fact, you can train the vines, and they will still never taste any better than the soil in which you're growing them. And you can prune the grapes that are unhealthy, and on and on. And you can make the best, you know, you can have the best winemaking practices. You can have the best climate and vintage uh, and weather and harvest. It'll still never taste any better than the, the soil in which you're growing it. And I think that our people including me, we're all like grapes, and we want to pick the best grapes and the best rootstock possible, but it's really our job more than anything to take care of the soil. So now let's go a step further. I once heard it said that, very simply, culture is the way we do things around here, and that starts to get us somewhere. Um, interestingly, you don't have to work to have a culture. You can have Everybody has a culture, whether they work at it or not. The question is, is it an uplifting and intentional culture? Those are the two things we work at. So, for example, when I was growing up, I remember the neighbors across the way had a culture. The dad screeched into the driveway every single day at 5, 10 p.m. 
would make himself a drink, and, you know, the family would sit down to dinner at, at 6 o'clock, and that was their culture. That's how they did things. Um, the question is, was that an intentional culture? Was that an uplifting culture? Um, I'm not making judgments on that family, but um, I've come to think a step further than just the way we do things around here. I believe that there's actually, it's possible to do a mathematical equation where culture is the sum of all the behaviors that we champion minus all the wrong behaviors that that we accept. So I've come to learn over many, many years that if you want to have an intentional culture, you've got to start by naming the behaviors that you want to see more of, and you've got to champion and celebrate those behaviors when you see them. And then furthermore, you've got to you've got to make it very clear that you're not willing to accept the behaviors that are antithetical to the culture you want. And as a young restaurateur, too often I learned the hard way that I was really, really good at championing the ones that I wanted, but I put up with for way too long. I was far too patient with some of the behaviors that actually were detracting from our culture and more more importantly than anything, were therefore detracting from my credibility as a leader. Because every time I put up with a behavior that is antithetical to our culture, it undermines every word I said about what we want. So it's taking care of our soil comes down to feeding the nutrients we want in the soil and making sure to take out uh, you know, all, all the things that are toxic to that soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I once uh, I once heard um, you know a saying that a great culture either attracts or repels, and I think that you know that sounds like a scenario where you've got everyone or the majority of your equation is in the people championing those things, and and what we've seen at least um, in, even in our own business is as soon as you put up with those behaviors that you've defined and you said, um, you know, these are the things we champion. You see kind of the ante of that, of that behavior. If you tolerate it, the water becomes very murky and gray and it makes it really hard for folks to understand what is what right and what is wrong when you as a leader tolerate a mixed bag of things. Is that kind of similar to what your take is on, on that, uh, on that Danny, in terms of your equation? Completely true, and you know, I'll share another thing that I've learned over the years the hard way. Early on, um, I would get asked a lot of questions about the, the two questions I would typically get asked about culture were not what is culture, but it was like the, the two things were how do you guys always manage to hire so many awesome people, and the second question was how are you going to manage to maintain your culture even as you grow? And the second question was much, much harder for me to answer because I think we both know or we all know that the road is littered with examples of businesses whose culture was diluted as they grew. And frankly, it's because Mm -hmm. they stopped taking from the soil. But um, I learned that 
this question that I couldn't answer, how will we maintain our culture even with all the growth? And this was, this was in the years when Shake Shack was just starting to grow from one to two to three. And, you know, we had seven or eight full-service fine dining restaurants in New York City at that point. And I asked a, a woman who's been very, very helpful to me through the years um, to help me with that question. And she said, you know, this is not um, sometimes philosophical questions that cannot be answered demand that you look at the question itself. And she said, implicit in that question is that culture can, can or should be maintained. And I said, can you help me? You know, she was like Yoda. She was answering my question with a question. And, and I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, you're making the assumption that culture should be maintained when you say, how can we maintain our culture even with all of our growth? Culture cannot or should not be maintained. Culture, how we do things around here, is always changing and must always change if you're growing. Culture uh, is very different than values. Your values should never change. The, the core values, the things that, that you would never change no matter what, how you treat people, um, wh whatever your core values are. But the way you do things, your culture has to change. And so she said, I'd like to urge you to reframe that question that you cannot answer and to say and to ask yourself, if, if culture is like a shark, which must always be moving forward or it's going to die, it must always be changing, then maybe the right question to ask instead is, how can we use our growth to advance our culture? And what I loved about that is that I could then start to think about, uh, I could start to think about it very, very differently. And, and what I've learned more than anything is that Every time we grow, I need to make sure that the people who get the promotions, both financially and professionally, are not just the people who are the best at doing the thing they do, but are also the people who are best for our culture. Because I know that staff mm -hmm. members are expert boss watchers, and every single one of the uh, staff members is watching when somebody gets a promotion. And, and if you promote somebody who is not only excellent at what they do, but also undoubtedly a, a culture carrier, that sends a very, very loud message to everybody. If I behave like that, something good is going to happen for me. And in that, our growth mm -hmm. is actually helping us to advance our culture. And we've got to be resolute about not compromising that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to kind of dive in a little bit to our next area, which is around um, the kind of the core value aspects of things and, and kind of what makes up that, uh, that, um, th th those values. And so, you know, I, I'm not, I, I want to throw a question to the audience here and, and do you have a clear defined set of core values for your restaurant? And it's just a, you know, simple yes or no question. Um, I'll just, uh, kind of leave it for a few seconds here for, for some folks to answer. And when we're, while we're kind of looking at uh, and waiting for some, some folks, to, the questions to roll in. So, so, I mean, looking at some of the, the, um, the responses here, about 85% said, uh, said yes. Oh, it's kind of shifting here as I'm seeing things come, come in about 70% said yes. 
27 percent uh, saying saying no. And I, I think a lot about these in, in establishing core values early on. I mean, how early is too early, Danny, to kind of talk and, and, and kind of work at establishing some of these foundational elements like core values? I don't think it's ever too early to do it, Jordan. I think that um, mm -hmm. language is the mortar between the bricks that, that build culture. And we cannot expect the people in our organization to be mind readers and guess what behaviors we expect from them. And so I think the sooner that, that a leader can define her core values for their team, the sooner that the team can say, okay, now I understand not just what I'm supposed to do, but how I'm supposed to behave while I'm doing it. And I just think that mm -hmm. the way we behave is, is truly uh, the definition of what will create your culture. I also will share that, that these behaviors can change over time. Um, it's, I, I will say we've probably evolved our, our core behaviors um, at least 15 times since I first became a restaurateur as I've learned more and more about communicate more clearly with people. And I think that the more you can make the behaviors um, very specific to your company, the stronger you will build your culture. And I'll tell you why. If you think about where does culture exist in the world, it, it exists in your family, it exists in sports teams, it exists in your college, the fraternity or sorority you belong to, your company. And often what happens with, with language is that language becomes a shorthanded way, consistently used language in a culture. You see this in religion, organized religion. Consistently used language in any culture does two things. It's a shortcut so that everyone here knows how we do things around here. But it's also a way to express probably the greatest hum human longing, and that's the longing to belong. So, Jordan, I'd like to know from you, what was your nickname in your family growing up? Oh, man. Uh, probably like JB or like, yeah, it's probably JB. Like, I didn't really have a nickname. My Like, George just doesn't even sound very good as a nickname. So, I think it was just my initials. <laughs> sounds good or doesn't. The fact is that I never in a million years would have known to call you George. I never in a million years would have known to call you JB. But when your family did, it was a shorthanded way of saying we are all part of the same team and we belong. And I think that when a company or a restaurant expresses core values or expected behaviors, if you can do it in a way that everybody knows what you mean, and you use that language consistently, you are, you're not only strengthening the culture, but you're strengthening a sense of we belong because we know what he means when he says that, or we know what she means when she says that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. One of the things I thought might be worth sharing um, as well, because, you know, I, I want folks to have some, some great tactical <laughs> takeaways too, is, um, even just kind of establishing some of their core behaviors. And, and you mentioned that you, you guys have iterated on yours many times. Um, you know, for, for us, when we were 20 people at seven shifts and, and 
we, um, you know, we went through a small really exercise to kind of establish our values and, and myself and my co-founders identified a few, you know, great top performers, kind of like undeniably folks that, you know, if we could clone, we would clone them into infinity. That step one was identifying who they were. Step two, we actually then just kind of whiteboarded all these all these traits about these individuals that we thought were amazing. And there was no wrong answer. And the whiteboard was just full of different things. And we did kind of like a keep, kill, combine exercise. Obviously, some of them were the same, just kind of worded differently. So we combined those. And we, we kind of thought like, what are the oxygen traits? What are the things that we can't live without? And really trying to narrow it down to kind of, you know, five max type of, of oxygen traits. That was that step two. And then step three was we invited these individuals um, that we wish we could clone into the room and, and brought them in on what we were doing. And we got their help to refine it further. And, um, and this was important from a buy-in perspective and, and to get their feedback. That was step three. And then, and then step four, once, once we kind of met and, and refined them a little bit more, we rolled it out to the team at an all hands and, you know, alongside these, these great individuals that we um, thought were very special. And there was this kind of, I think there was this like feeling of, you know, that it wasn't extremely top down, that it was, it was more collaborative and, and folks had immense respect for these individuals as well. And so if, if anyone's kind of looking for ways in which to implement this in a, a simple way, that that's just a small example of, of what we did. And, um, and, and, you know, to this date, you know, we, like Danny said, we've iterated on our values a few times and we made some mistakes in terms of creating almost like creating values as the like anti value of a person or a few individuals that we had to part ways with, which was the wrong approach. I think that, you know, for us, our learnings were, you know, let's, let's kind of think of a clean slate and, and what type of behaviors do we want in the business you know individuals aside like what are what are the things we really want and and go there and i think that was a big helpful exercise um for us um i think that makes good sense yeah and and maybe even switching switching gears again a little bit here danny is i'd love to just touch on we we talk a lot about culture and 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 values and, and how those are incredibly important and I see this kind of change happening in the industry and, and folks are talking about compensation quite a bit. And, you know, how have you seen restaurants evolve when it comes to thinking through um, how they pay their people, kind of the types of benefits they're offering? Um, have you, have you seen any kind of step change happen into those that are really succeeding in this, in this battle for, you know, great workers and, and to retain your best? Well, I think we've been struggling with that question for a long time, Jordan. I, I think our industry uh, was based, as you well know, in, in America on a tipping model for half of the employees um, and a hourly compensation model for the other half of the employees. And then, I guess, on top of that, um, salary manager management on top of the whole thing. And... That has proven to be a, a very, very challenging model over time. I understand why it happened in the first place. Um, this goes all the way back to right after the end of slavery, and there were two industries in our country 
the restaurant industry and the Pullman train car industry that successfully petitioned the government uh, that it was not slavery to not pay um, an hourly rate uh, to people who would instead be receiving tips. And that seemed like a, a pretty good financial deal, um, which is why to this day, even though the, the uh, subminimum wage has gone from zero to you know different different amounts in different states, there are still some states where the the uh, subminimum wage is just over two dollars an hour, believe it or not. But what has happened mm-hmm. over the years is that restaurant prices, as you know, menu prices have only gone up. And a tip is basically a percentage of the menu price. Uh, we would like to believe that it's a meritocracy, but it's not. I think most people who tip 20% always tip 20%. People who tip 15% almost always tip 15%. And so as years have gone by, uh, tipped employees in many segments of our industry um, have continued to do well, but hourly employees have not kept pace with that. And because hourly employees in many states are not legally able to receive tips. So that's been, for me, the biggest problem to try to address. We tried for five and a half years to exercise a new model called Hospitality Included, where uh, 100% of, of our expenses would be reflected in the menu price, and we eliminated tipping in that model. Um, and it had some success, and it had many, many challenges. The biggest challenge was that um, we, in order to pay our formerly tipped employees uh, what they had been making, and in order at the same time to improve the uh, hourly compensation for kitchen workers uh, to try to close that gap, which just doesn't seem fair at all, and in order to pay our first-time managers more money because it seems convoluted that in many, many cases, um, managers are making less money than tipped employees. Uh, so you could be working for someone who makes less money than you do. And then furthermore, to try to, to have an extended family leave policy, we had to charge uh, much, much higher menu prices. And that put us at a competitive disadvantage uh, to restaurants that were accepting tips and I might add that, that in America anyway, there's a um, federal uh, tip tax credit where the government actually pays you to accept tips, um, which is a whole other story. And you, you have to give that up when you give up tipping. So during the uh, quarantine period of the pandemic, when we were first able to start to serve guests outdoors in New York City for the first time, still no one was able to be served indoors, we might have six or seven tables outside of a restaurant. This is pre-vaccine. And we had guests literally throwing dollars at our wait staff because they were so appreciative of the courage to come out on the front line and serve guests, um, you know, even though it, it was not a safe time at all. And New York, you know, had a lot of PTSD from, from the early days of COVID, and we just felt at that point that it was not in keeping with our culture of trying to be on our team side to say, you may not accept uh, gratitude from a guest. And furthermore, you must tell that guest that they're not allowed to say thank you. So 
after six years of trying hospitality included, we shifted and we said, all right, tipping's not the problem. The, pro the real problem is the inability to share tips with everyone who played a role in creating that experience. So while we uh, returned to accepting tips in the restaurant, what we began was to pay a revenue share, a percentage of our revenue, to everyone in the kitchen uh, so that there would be alignment and on a very, very busy night, everybody would win. And that has, that has been a very helpful thing. Um, I also think that a lot of compensation um, has to do with, with work-life balance these days. Um, we have learned from our team members that um, they could actually accept earning a little bit less if they could have a much, much more flexible schedule and a much more flexible lifestyle. And so we're looking at that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. But there's no question that our industry, which has led the way in so many social fronts with respect to charging what we have to charge for responsibly raised vegetables and animals, but we haven't done a great job historically at saying, but it's people that we should really be paying more to. Because if you really want to have uh, a great hospitality experience in a restaurant, ladies and gentlemen, you have got to appreciate that it's people, and for too long our industry has not charged enough money to pay our people mm -hmm. what, what they really should be paid. And it takes all of us to yeah. make these changes. Maybe with today's inflationary environment, if there's any silver lining in it, it's that there, there should be an opportunity to do something that, that politicians cannot do, and that's to raise the, the compensation for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I no, couldn't couldn't agree more. You know, I think even just touching a little bit of round that you mentioned flexibility as being a very important aspect to some of these workers, and this echoes very, very true in the 4,000 restaurant workers we surveyed in seven shifts, and the, the three reasons they ended up leaving the industry when we asked them, the, t the number one was pay followed by flexibility in their schedule. And the third one was manager recognition. And I'm just wondering in, in terms of just touching on the flexibility a little bit, um, I, I, was also, I was also speaking with um, a man named Jim Taylor um, from a restaurant consulting firm called Benchmark 60. And, and um, he was talking to me about how one of his clients was, you know, struggling with the flexibility uh, thing in terms of ensuring that staff got the hours they need, but he could also operate the business effectively and just kind of saying like, I, I might just have to put some folks on, on like, you know, just do like a salaried model and, and kind of digging into that a little bit more. And so I'm, I'm wondering, have you seen any of any types of those initiatives take form or is, are, are those types of models being discussed more? It's very, very challenging because the labor laws, both the federal labor laws as well as the state labor laws, are often in conflict with one another. And I think many restaurateurs have been unwittingly burned by not understanding what, their, what all the labor laws are. And there's a lot of things you would like to do that you've come to learn are not uh, feasible from a legal standpoint. Mm -hmm. And... We have a system that says uh, that it's very, very baked into hourly compensation for people who are not 
deemed to be managers. And I don't believe you can classify them uh, as salaried employees. So it's I'm not a labor lawyer, but I know that, that you're, you're asking a very good question that has a very challenging answer, uh, especially in America. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Um, moving Moving along to just even the recruiting aspect. And one quote that's always stuck with me from Jim Sullivan, a restaurant consultant, um, you know, he's like, we're, he said, we're better at training than we are at recruiting. So we hurry, hire the wrong person and hope training will fix them. But there's no right way to develop the wrong person. And, you know, Danny, I'd love your, your take on just, you know, recruitment in general. I know you, you have some, some thoughts on it as well in, in terms of what you can train and what you feel like you can't when it comes to recruiting people. Well, I think we know that that um, technical skills can be trained. Emotional skills are kind of baked in by the time we've already hired you. So we've never learned how to train someone who's otherwise not nice to be nice. We've never been able to train someone who's otherwise a natural-born skeptic to, to feel hopeful. Um, we've never been able to train somebody who's doesn't really have a good work ethic to care deeply about the quality of their work. There's there's five or six really important emotional skills that we've identified that are always present in somebody who has what we call a high HQ, the hospitality quotient. Um, and so the key thing is to try to train our the people who do the hiring in the company how to recognize those emotional skills and then also to, to celebrate them when 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 people embody them. So, for example, I'm a big believer that there's sort of a bell curve on these emotional skills. There are some people who are, just don't have it at all, um, and there's some people who have it in such abundance. Um, sometimes the biggest mistake we make is to focus too much of our energy trying to change the ones who don't have it at all instead of what we should be doing, which is celebrating the people who we sometimes take for granted because they come to work and they're not only great at what they do, but they just, you know, they they they, they get the hospitality in and out. Um, what we've learned is that by celebrating the ones that we used to take for granted, the rest of the people on the mm-hmm. bell curve, i.e. most of us, are like sunflowers and we turn where the sun is. And what I realized a long time ago is that by focusing on trying to change the behavior, my attention was like the sun, and my attention on the people who were not able to exemplify these behaviors was inadvertently creating all the rest of the sunflowers to turn their attention that way. And what I've learned is that if I focus my attention on the people who wake up every day of their lives, just the way they're wired, if, if we really celebrate those people, the rest of the sunflowers turn in that direction. And it's a very, very powerful way, I think, to change culture. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, no, no doubt. In, in terms of, in terms of even re- retaining folks on, on that side, you know, say, say you've got these, these folks in and you've recruited them based on them demonstrating these core behaviors and values in the interview process, um, and, and you can train them for the rest. You know that that retention piece is, is it starts to kind of get interesting to me. And in, in learning what other folks 
um, out there are doing right now to retain their talent. I know, um, you know, prior to the pandemic, I'm not sure if this is still true, but when we surveyed folks, um, you know, people were leaving the industry, high turnover, and, and, and a lot of managers didn't do exit interviews. 90% plus didn't do ex- exit interviews. And, you know, I think the silver lining is like a lot of this has changed in, into how people, how operators and managers think about their their teams. And, and, and really understanding that there's a huge cost to having a great person that turns over. And, you know, there, there's all sorts of numbers around $3,500 to $5,000 for a team member, you know, $15,000 in, in for a manager in loss of productivity, rehiring, retraining. And there, there is, there is kind of, I'm, we're seeing more of a, a shift in understanding those, those kind of like time and, and call them, I guess, bottom line savings that, that folks are taking note on. Um, you know, what, what are some more tactical things um, are you seeing that, that are you seeing anything out there that certain restaurant brands are doing that are admirable that we think are are great that should be you know that that we can maybe even do as well maybe on a smaller scale with some some independence and I'm just curious if there are any any interesting um, things you're seeing some of these these brands do that that who are doing a good job of retaining. I think that your question is germane to any organization. It's not just restaurants mm-hmm. and it's not it's not chain restaurants, independent restaurants. It's it's called people. And I think that mm-hmm. I've learned that people will take exactly as much interest in you as they believe you're taking in them. No more, no less. And so we want to retain people, right? So what we're basically saying is we want you to stay interested in us. Well, guess how you, the currency of that is to take an interest in them. And mm-hmm. this is not a magic bullet. You can't just push a button and have that happen. You have to invest time. Um, it all falls under the category of servant leadership, which is when our leaders come to work every day, it cannot be a top-down, fear-based, um, do-as-I-say uh, management style. It's got to be a bottom-up um, I am here for the purpose of helping you be successful, for the purpose of helping create a platform for you to do your best work. And it takes time, but it saves time. I promise you it saves time. Every time we – this is all very, very counterintuitive because especially at a time when uh, it's been so incredibly challenging to hire people, imagine how it feels for, for my leaders when I say, I know that you are 18 cooks down throughout the organization. And I'm telling you that that even though you have 22 really, really good resumes of talented cooks, you're only allowed to hire five of them because only five of those really talented cooks are going to be additive to our culture. That is not mm-hmm. an easy thing to hear. And guess what? It is a short-term pain, but it's a long-term win because every time we put up with somebody on our team and we look the other way and we say, yeah, but but she's a really, really good cook, um, and yet they're actually um, really diminishing our culture, we're only making more problems for ourselves. It's only going to get harder. It's only going to make 
The rest of the team look at us like we have five heads when we talk about the expected behaviors. And, and so we've got to be resolute. And, and I would say that today, more than any time in my entire career, we restaurateurs should not be looking at each other um, as, as if our restaurants are competing with each other. We're competing with ourselves to hire people who have heart for hospitality. And I hate to say it, but if there's not enough of them out there, we've got to shrink our business until there is. Because the good news is that we've learned um, time and time and time again that when you have the right people on your team, it will eventually, sometimes it happens very quickly, sometimes it takes a little bit more time, but you get a flywheel. And it's a snowball effect where good people want to work with good people. And, and I would say that our people are our absolute best recruiters because when you've got yes. an ACES culture person on your team, they probably tend to know other ACES culture people, and they want to work with more people like them. And so that's been a very, very positive thing. And, but you've got, to be, you've got to be disciplined because the obvious answer is, well, of course we have to make exceptions, and of course we have mm-hmm. to make compromises because there's not enough people out there. I promise you that you will regret that. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. I think one of the maybe even tactical ideas that folks could do is, you know, starting with your comment around, you know, not competing, but really competing with yourself and understanding your own business and understanding and taking an interest in your people. Maybe even I've seen some folks even just surveying their staff. You know, why do you like coming to work? What can we help change to make your job better? What can the business do better? You know, with some of, some questions like that, you may find folks that have, um, maybe there, there are some trends um, and things you, 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 you want to implement, <clears throat> but at the same time, it shows you're taking interest and you care and you want to change things for the better to, to make your workplace a better place for them to come to work. And also you may well, find um, you just threw some, me- some folks with, you just threw me a softball Sorry, because that? that's what oh. I said. You just softball because that's what Seven Shifts does so incredibly well for us is to give us the opportunity to ask those questions and take that interest. And obviously, the key thing is, if you're going to ask the question, you better be prepared for the answer. And if the answer, um, if you if you act on that answer, you you get amazing currency. On the other hand, if you ask the question and don't um, pay attention to to the answer, you can actually diminish it. So it's a high-risk game, but you've given us the chance to play it uh, by using seven shifts, and and I, I think we're better off for it. No, I appreciate that. And you, you hit that softball out of the park, Danny, I must say. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm also, also kind of playing on that, that note is is even just making those responses to your point, like making them public. And I know that's kind of, you know, they're, they're, it, it may seem scary, but at, at the same time, you got to be vulnerable. You got to put yourself out there if you want to make your, your place a great and unique place to work and understanding your people is the first part and building that level of trust and transparency is, is going to be paramount um, to doing that. So um, anyway, something that, that, uh, that we definitely practice in, at our company within our own teams is I mean, anytime we survey the, the, our, our company, we make the results public at all hands. 
here's where people don't think we're, you know, do people think we're, you know, flexible enough? How's, how's burnout? How's, you know, compensation? I think it's, um, it's something that people learn to appreciate. And to your point, other workers start talking about that. And they're your best ways to bring in other great people. And that's not, that's not just restaurants. That's every business um, that has, that has great people working in them. Um, I, I also want to, um, you know, I want to I want to make sure there's enough time for folks to uh, to ask some questions here. So maybe we can pop over and have the next maybe 10 minutes or so to just kind of get some questions from the audience. And, and you know, Danny or, or myself would be happy to happy to chime in here. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Danny and Jordan. So let's uh, indeed let's turn to some questions here. There are quite a few. Um, OK, we'll start with this one. So how much importance do you put into professional development of your teams? Do you usually create those opportunities internally or find external resources? Sorry, can you read that again, Danny Klein? Sure. How much, uh, gotcha. uh, how much importance do you put into professional development of your teams, and do you usually create those opportunities internally or find external resources? Yeah, D Danny, do you, want, do you want to take that one? Well, the answer is both. Um, actually, how much importance a lot, and do we do we create those opportunities internally or find external resources? The answer is both. Matter of fact, right next door to me right now, we're doing a hospitality training class. And you may say, why would those guys do a hospitality training class? And the answer is because, you know what, until people are rolling their eyes because they've heard it too many times, we haven't said it enough. There's a great expression, everything has already been said, but not everything has been said superbly. And even if it had been, everything must be said freshly over and over again. And so we're constantly training. Um, we, we do a lot of internal training, but we also sometimes bring in people from the outside. We, we created a wonderful development opportunity for some of our uh, appointed Gen Next leaders um, called the Howe Institute for Moral Leadership. And they be, we, we picked, we handpicked eight people who we thought had great potential to continue to grow in our organization. And they had an opportunity to be fellows along with probably another 30 people from much different companies, uh, different industries, et cetera, to learn really a lot about leadership. Getting back to one of Jordan's earlier questions, one of the biggest things we've learned about why people leave their jobs, and because we did a lot of that internal research here, um, especially when we were trying to rebuild our team um, after a year and a half of not being able to be in business, um, had nothing to do with compensation. And it didn't even have to do with, um, with necessarily the, the flexible um, work-life uh, balance. It had a lot to do with not wanting to report to the person they used to report to. And we learned that people more often leave their manager than leave their job. And so there's just not enough training we can do for leadership. And it all comes down to servant leadership. I promise you when someone, when we have that moment, we've all had it, where someone really good leaves our company and you kind of slap your forehead and you went, oh my gosh, that person was, how are we going to get on without them? Invariably, in the exit interview, uh, if you chip away at it enough, it comes down to they left their boss. And so that is on us to create 
um, a servant leadership culture, they probably did not have a boss who came to work every day for the purpose of helping them feel and be successful. Right. All right. Uh, so the second question we have here for you guys, um, I was not surprised to see 77% respond that they have core values at their companies. I'm very interested in what percentage feels that there is adherence in their companies to said core values, which is often the problem. The end goal is becoming unwilling to accept anti-ethical behaviors and leading by example. Are there some key actions a company can quickly implement to effectively see the overall results they desire? Yeah. Um, so is, is is the question almost like uh, how to kind of implement a an outcome where some of those behaviors that you put up with, you know, you don't want to put up with them any, anymore? Is that more or less how I'm interpreting that? Yeah, I think I I think I read that question as you know we all have core values, but how do you actually make sure people are living by them? Yeah, I can I can shed a little bit of light of what we do at Seven Shifts is um, we have a shared Slack channel um, where we kind of have callouts and shoutouts of, of folks that demonstrate core values, and, and we've had this since the early days, and so it's a bit ingrained in our culture. But um, you know, when you have an experience when someone is embracing a new challenge, making an every an experience an eleven, solving with simplicity, which are some of our core values. Other team members on our team will nominate them publicly and 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 actually share that story within the company on on, on like a on, through Slack. And what I do at the end of every month at all hands is I read all of these core value stories, and there's dozens, and even um, per category, and so it. It takes a little bit of time, but you know, it's getting that sto- that that story that you think is the best demonstration of that behavior and value, and then reading it in front of the entire company as the one you chose to kind of make an example of and say this is like the best demonstration. And so, for us, it's Danny mentioned it. You, you got to say things, you know, hundreds of times, and and. Um, and for us, we've we've got so many folks joining the business, and they haven't heard it. It'll be their first time to hear it. And so, for those that have been there a while, I'm sure they get it. But um, it's really important to communicate um, and, and over communicate. Um, but reading those examples is so important because unless you consistently show what it means to demonstrate that core value, um, people will kind of interpret it in their own ways. So I think that that demonstration and those stories really help. Um, I don't know if you have anything else to add there, Danny, but. No, you did it. All right, well, the next question awesome. we have is for Danny. Um, so I imagine organizational beha- behavior was a natural fit for you and your way of doing business. At what point in your career were you able to put your finger on the concept of organizational behavior and its importance? Do you remember when the organizational behavior light bulb went off in your head? I do. Um, I I came into being a restaurateur at a pretty young age. Um, I was 27 when I opened my first restaurant, Union Square Cafe, and the only time I had been anyone's boss before that was when I was working on a political campaign. And um, 100% of the 20 people who reported to me were volunteers, meaning that the campaign wasn't paying them a penny. And I learned something really, really important from that experience is that that the only reason they were coming to work, because I couldn't give anyone a promotion or a raise, I couldn't demote anybody, I couldn't 
dock anyone pay if they didn't show up. The only reason they were coming to work was because there was a shared higher purpose of wanting to see this particular candidate elected. Um, I will share that the, the candidate got 7.5% of the votes, 7.5%. He was the independent presidential candidate in 1980 um, named John Anderson. But the lesson I learned there was that what if we treated all of our employees, even those who get paychecks, obviously, but what if we treated them as if they were volunteers, that we want to hire someone who's so good that they could have gotten this job um, or, or a job like this for at least this much money at 20 other places, and we've got to treat them as if they're volunteering because they're choosing to bring their gifts to our company. Well, what what that taught me is that the onus is on us to create a higher purpose for why they're coming to work. It's not just to be an order taker. People don't they don't want to be a cog in the wheel. Uh, we learned a, a good lesson from a, a philosopher who's a great marketer named Seth Godin, who said, you know, in the same way that we've got this tradition, take your daughter to work day or take your child to work day, um, that what we should really be thinking about is bring yourself to work day and give people the opportunities to to bring their whole selves to work and respect and listen to who they are and provide you know, a place for them to belong. And then when when you do that, kind of magically, they make your guests feel like they belong. And that's what we all want. Okay. And so our next question, I guess anyone can answer this, are core values a top-down pronouncement? And if not, how can they be developed collaborative, collaboratively with staff in an ever-changing high-turnover environment? Danny, do you want to take that one? Well, I, I will only because I'm I'm sitting in front of a uh, a coffee mug that we created about ten years ago with all of our quote unquote core values on it, and we created a um, a word bubble. There's probably uh, 200 words on this coffee mug that we crowdsourced, and the joke was on me thinking that that was going to be something we could ask people. It was great that we asked people from the bottom up what what they thought the core values were, but we didn't then do a good job of bucketing and editing and distilling those. And, you know, finally, uh, as I said earlier, we've iterated and iterated, and we now have five core behaviors, which would, some would argue is too many, um, because you can't really expect to hold people accountable for more than three to five behaviors. So the joke was on us having 200 of these words. But now we have five, but they all came from our team in the first place. And, And so what we ended up with, and then we shopped them all over the place to make sure we have buy in, because if it's top down, the two things that I can promise you won't work is top down in the first place. And then worse yet, if it's do as I say, but not as I do. And so I know that every leader in our company has to embody these uh, because if our leaders don't, it it completely diminishes all of our credibility. All right, well, everybody, that's all the time we have for today. Well, many thanks to Seven Shifts for making this program possible to our audience for attending. And, of course, to Danny Meyer and Jordan Bush for sharing their insight. As mentioned, the program was recorded, and you will receive an email letting you know 
when that recording is available. Thanks again and have a great day. Thanks again for checking out the Restaurant Growth Podcast presented by Seven Shifts. We're so grateful to our listeners and we'd love to hear from all of you. Send us an email to podcast at sevenshifts.com and check us out on social. We're at Seven Shifts on all platforms. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next week.